Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. You're listening to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Green. How are you doing, Patrick? How are you doing? I'm, well. I'm, well. <laughs> I'm good. After, I feel like our intro tr- has been getting weird because you, you always ask me how I'm doing, and that time you gave me a little window to step into, and I was like, wait a minute, how, how you how you doing? <laughs> And it was kind of I'm weird. well. It was uh, a very Blade Runner day here in LA the past few days, pouring rain, um, which mm. was kind of nice and uh, atmospheric. But yeah, all is well. Yeah, it's been unseasonably hot here on the East Coast of the United States. It's been, it was 80 degrees yesterday. Uh, but today it's getting a little cold again. We had our first freeze warning and uh, it's feeling like winter. And I'm feeling like Officer K getting bundled up in my sweatshirt here. Um, and, uh, and I'm excited to revisit him today. And before we introduce our guest, just a little bit of background on what exactly is going on. So as as everybody knows, in addition to being the 40th anniversary of Blade Runner, this is also the fifth anniversary of Blade Runner 2049. And uh, we've commemorated that somewhat lightly over the year by just sort of revisiting it, thinking about how it's changed, how the themes have deepened, revisiting conversations like Joy and Rachel and artificial intelligence. Uh but we haven't really gone beyond that much to talk about other characters and how they resonate differently with us. Uh, we get from time to time emails from listeners or messages on you know our Facebook page or in our social media group, Fields of Clantha, from people who have you know things they want to talk about, people who are kind of finding the podcast and listening to it and catching up. And uh, I get the sense a lot of the time, because I know I do this when I listen to podcasts on my own, that... Um, People are kind of talking along with us as they're listening, so they're like pausing it and being like, "Oh, wait a minute!" Blah, 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 blah. Um, and and this is kind of the sense that I got from our listener today, who was joining as a guest, who wrote us, who actually sent us this wonderful voice message, talking quite a bit about the show, about his love for the films, and then uh, we followed up, did some back and forth on some episode ideas, and one that came up was revisiting Officer K five years later. And before I turn it over to our guest, um, you might remember that it took us a while to get to K, even though our show basically coincided with the release of 2049. We didn't really get to K for a while. Similarly, how we didn't really get to Deckard for a while. These two huge main characters were kind of sidelined a little bit by the show. And, uh, And so in the effort to avoid doing that again, we want to celebrate Officer K-937 on the fifth anniversary of him becoming an official Blade Runner character by having our guest for today, James, on. So without further ado, James, welcome to Shoulder of Orion. Thanks. Uh, it's, it's really, I'm really honored and privileged to be here, I must say. Um, so thanks for having me on. Welcome. So, James, uh, tell us your, like, usually when we have guests on, certainly new guests, but we want to know a little bit of history. What's your relationship with Blade Runner? But as we get into K, I want to know how you what your relationship with Blade Runner was before you saw 2049. Were you aware of the film? For a lot of people, Blade Runner 2049 was their first experience, and then they got into the the actual original. So what's that journey like for you? Yeah, I don't know if you're assuming that just because I'm young. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) But um, but no, for me... um... Oh, I was I was ready for this question. I've got I've got so much to say here. Well, um, no, I watched uh, Blade Runner. I had a relationship with the first film before I uh, before twenty forty nine. A long time. I watched uh, Blade Runner for the first time when I was uh, fifteen. So, um, but I was fifteen in twenty fourteen. So it it doesn't seem as long. I don't know. But uh, but yeah, um, my uh, my granddad actually introduced me to Blade Runner. So. Um, he's someone that really prides himself on um, reading a lot of books, seeing, he's seen every film. Um, and I was going through a phase when I was 13, 14, 15, as we all do, you know, um, getting into movies and all that sort of thing. And uh, and he was like, you know, and this is someone whose opinion at the time I really respected a lot. And he said, you know, be- best film I've ever seen or film you have to see is Blade Runner. So I watched it. Um, I-, I immediately loved it. It was a film that 
straight away. I just it really captivated me. I just I, even though I was 15 when I saw it, and and now I see you know eight years later in a completely different way. I've seen it so many times, all the cuts, everything, but um, just the way that. I, I, even though it's literally I'm, I'm 23, I've actually that's already changed. You know, the my relationship with it has changed it with each viewing, and obviously, I assume that will continue to happen as I get older and go through other things in my life. But uh, but anyway, so that was Blade Runner, um, and then obviously, two or three years later, uh, having seen it for the first time, I watched. Uh, sorry, Blade Runner 2049 was in the cinema. Now, at this time, I wasn't really so much into my films. I think I just watched it as more of a casual viewer, to be honest. Um, I didn't, I wasn't caught up in any of the uh, build-up to it so much. Um, you'll have to give me a couple of minutes just to explain this, because I'm going to also tie into how I actually discovered your podcast as well. So forgive me if I, if I do rattle on here, but it's, it's worth telling. So um, long story short, with the actual first viewing of the film, I didn't really... Um, it went in over my head, I would say, to be to to be completely honest. Uh, it was it was a film. I I I realized what I was seeing was very uh, the the very obvious things about how beautiful it is, the cinematography, everything about that. But I didn't it didn't sink into me at all. I kind of I, I wasn't I don't know like what kind of mindset I was in going into it, but I was just I think I wasn't really expecting or prepared for such a a, a deep film, you know. So then. I came back to it earlier this year. Um, so at the very beginning of this year, I, th I thought I was, you know, going through a bunch of films I wanted to get through, and I was, and I saw Blade Runner twenty four nine. So I thought, yeah, let me rewatch it because I feel like I missed something the first time I watched it, and I I've got to give this another chance. Um, and I did, and the second time I still didn't really get everything, which might sound crazy, yeah, but the second time I saw it, I, I still like it. Still didn't really like something didn't click for me. Um, and uh, and then what I did, um, I went away. Uh, I went away. I watched. Uh, I, in the meantime, I watched uh, the Batman as well, which came out in March. I watched that. That had a couple of things, a couple of elements about it that reminded me of Blade Runner a little bit. So that was still on my mind. So I thought, let me just do a little bit of research into Blade Runner twenty four nine. So I did a bit of research, and and I was kind of like, well, okay, yeah. And then I think I must have read a lot of YouTube comments and stuff as well. And one thing I did certainly fall in love with straight away was the soundtrack. And I'll come back to that. But I was looking at comments and stuff, and I was thinking YouTube comments, and then stuff was beginning to add up for me. So I watched it a third time, and that's when it hit me like a ton of bricks. Uh, it really did. It blew me off my feet, and and I realized everything. So for me, 2049 was a film which was a little bit, you know, when you get like in art, you have like an optical illusion. It was a little bit like that for me where... I think I had to kind of squint and look at it a certain way, certain angle, and then it just like completely, now it's just a bottomless pit of just all these subjects and, and ideas and everything is just, it's it's actually overwhelming. Um, <laughs> how and, and, and that's testament to the fact, that, the testament to that is the fact that this is a fifth year anniversary. You've been doing this podcast for five years. And then anyway, I wanted to say how I found, how I found this podcast, because that's, that's quite interesting, because I don't have Facebook or uh, I don't have Facebook or anything like that. Um, I, I just have Twitter, right? And and you guys, you have Twitter right, that I found, but it's it's not so uh, active as what I understand your Facebook groups to be. So the way I found this podcast was by, I, like I said before, I was really into the soundtrack. And when I'm at work or when I'm, you know, when I'm out and about walking my dog, I listen to my music and I, I, I was listening to this soundtrack a lot. But I, the soundtrack itself, the album version, it's a bit jarring because it's split up by Frank Sinatra, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's a little bit like Elvis... And I can make a playlist and edit it and everything. But then I, I was looking on YouTube for one, like a two hour sort of version that was just had everything in it. And I found your one. Patrick, I'm going to assume that you made it. I, I believe you're a producer. No, that was, right? that was Jamie. Jamie did Was it? it? I got to say, I've got to say, that's one of the best things I've ever heard. It, I, 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 it's so amazing how you put in the, it, it's just, it was beautiful. I was listening to it many, many times over and over. Um, and then one of my colleagues came behind me and he was like, oh, because I had the YouTube video open there in the corner and he was like, oh, you know, um, like, uh, what's that podcast you're listening to? And I said, it's not a podcast, I'm just listening to this music. He said, but, but it's, it says podcast there. And I saw that the YouTube channel name had podcast in it. I thought, really? So I went, I went on the channel, I was looking around for like, there was like, I think there's about two or three videos on there. So I was kind of, I was a bit confused. So I said, well, it can't be a podcast about Blade Runner, you know, it's like, it's two films, you know, like maybe there's like a one-off episode or something. So I went, I went on Spotify and I found you there. And then I, and I, was, I thought you can't have a, 
you can't have been doing this for five years. Because uh, this is in August, by the way. This is in August. So I'm a very new listener, relatively speaking. I thought, you can't have a podcast for five years about two films. So I thought, let me just, let's see what, see what happens. How, how much, how much have they got out of this? And, and, and here I am now. And so, you know, um, it's just, it's just something I'm still not exactly up to date with the podcast. I'm, I think I'm on about two years in now or something. I've like really tried to flat out since I messaged you, Patrick, I've really tried to flat out, catch up with everything I can. Um, so I looked you up and yeah, the, the rest is history. And, and it's sort of, it's the podcast that I never knew I needed you know um honestly because it's just it's something it's you've just gone and explored so many incredible incredibly deep and poignant and thought-provoking subjects that um it's just and it's just amazing because it's an outlet for the fans right and and it's something that otherwise you know it's 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 no matter who you meet whatever it's going to be even if you go down the street you meet someone who's there's someone there he could be the biggest Blade Runner fan ever it would take quite a while to get to know them that well to get to that subject so I think it's just amazing that you have um, an outlet here, which is just my favorite podcast. I love listening to all of your conversations, all your guests, all the subjects. Um, you guys are act like legends of the game. I've got to say, like, it's, it's really, that's why I said it's an honor to be here among the pair of you. And, um, and I just appreciate the fact that this is a podcast, you know, by the fans, for the fans. And, and that's, that's why I'm here today, I suppose. And, and it's, it's actually really humbling as well as like, someone that you guys you know barely i just sent a voice note on 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 an email address i wasn't even sure that was still active so i just thought yeah let me just send it out there and see what happens and then here i am so that's the story <laughs> that's awesome james thank you you know uh, i often introduce myself as a legend of the game so i feel like it really <laughs> that's what you are. yeah you are but james uh, well just no that, that yeah, means a lot thank you and it's, it's also cool hearing how you found the show because that's something that yeah. i you know I, I kind of wonder about from time to time you know, you said a few things in there that I want to revisit as we kind of get the conversation going. One of them is that the first time that I see a movie that I end up loving is typically not the time that I see it where I love it the most. Like the movies that I love the most usually kind of reveal themselves over time for me. Blade Runner, the first film, is a is a quintessential example of that because the first time I saw it, you know, as a teenager, uh, I was probably actually the same age you were. I was no, I think I was young. I think I was like twelve or thirteen when I saw it. Um, and, uh, and it, I, I thought it was like, you know, really cool sci-fi and, you know, I saw it because I love aliens so much and I was like, oh, I, you know, I should know this movie, but it didn't really speak to me in any real way. And then as like time went on and the director's cut and then, you know, the final cut came out, I kept seeing it and being like, oh my God, this movie actually is kind of speaking to me in new ways. And then now when I watch it, it feels like, you know, like, a a, a a hymn or a benediction it feels like a holy experience you know but it wasn't like that and even for me when we started shoulder of orion five years ago blade runner wasn't like that level that it is for me now then but by continually revisiting it and talking and learning about it it's one of those movies and one of those franchises that just like continues to find new places within me to burrow 2049 though for me is an example a pretty rare example of a film that spoke to me just as powerfully the first time I saw it as it does now. And I still don't know exactly what that's about. Uh, I don't think it's at all. And there's nothing wrong with 2049 because of that. Like, I'm not saying that it's not deep enough to continue. Cause obviously I still think about it and see it all the time, but I was like, I mean, I was more obsessed with 2049 when it came out than I've ever been with any movie that has ever released. I saw it like at least 10 times in movie theaters, probably more than that. Um, you know, I was seeing it in February, uh, and the last time I saw it, I will never forget, was Micah had the boys and they were on a trip to my parents' place because she had like some, you know, race the next morning she was running and my parents were going to watch the kids. So it was just me and Boston alone. We were still living in Boston at the time. And um, I found one place in Harvard that was still showing it. And it was like in this like underground movie theater. And I went in and it was still packed. It was like February 12th in, of 2018. And I was like, man, this movie is just is just working for people. Um, one of the reasons, though, why I think the movie worked for me so well initially was because Kay functions as a character much more unto himself to me than Deckard does. Deckard, as we've talked about actually quite a bit on recent episodes, is a character who's almost disappearing into the fabric of the first movie. Like he's clearly our he's like our audience, you know, cipher for it. And his journey is a very important one, but his journey almost serves more to highlight the journeys of other characters in the narrative around him, like Batty, who is like such an unmissable character from the first movie. Kay 
to me, is a very dynamic and memorable character in his own right, in addition to being that new audience cipher figure, slight, similar to what Deckard was. You know, I think Kay has this wonderful element to him where he gets to go on a real genuine journey of self-exploration and arrive somewhere as a result of it. Whereas Deckard in the first movie goes on that journey, but we just see him entering into discovery. Like we just see him stepping off the precipice into the unknown. Whereas Kay gets to the end of the movie and he has come full circle and he has learned these things and he says goodbye with the knowledge that he lived a life that was genuine. And I think that's part of why he speaks to me. But uh, Jamie, what, what are your thoughts on Kay five years later? Uh, honestly, I feel myself thinking about Kay more and more as a character. I feel like I Kay is less emotive than Deckard is, Deckard was or is or whatever. Um, whereas with Deckard, he's kind of cynical a lot of the time. He's kind of, you see his weird facial expressions. He's not really sure what he's doing. He questions a lot, whereas Kay is the antithesis of that. Kay is emotionless always his face is essentially always blank he's always saying yes ma'am or no ma'am or yes or no or doing his job but and at the same time he's also lost in this world he's just a cog an actual cog in a machine like physically he's a replicant and i think about him more i think as the world seems to digress and progress but digress and climate change and everything that that's happening k is this figure for me that i can really relate to in a way where we're just on this journey and we're not sure where it's going i and initially it's what's fascinating about k is i feel more emotionally invested in him than i ever was in deckard and that's something that i've come to over the course of five years um, whereas Deckard, I don't think about that much. I don't, when I think about Blade Runner, I don't think about Deckard. I think about everything else. To your point, Patrick, Deckard is that cipher. It's it's a way for us to maneuver through that world and through other characters in that world. Um, and Deckard is kind of like us in some ways. We're like, well, what, what are we seeing? What's going on here? What's the scoop? What's the story? And Deckard is doing and saying all of those things. Whereas Kay is this, again, just the opposite of that. Um, and he's, I don't know if he's settled with himself. Uh, the, the strange thing about Kay, again, this is something that I've, I've come to over the course of the last few years. I find it interesting that I can relate so much with Kay, um, as someone who is essentially not there in many ways. He is, he is an automaton. He is for all intents and purposes, an organic robot in 2049. And, he is, has more in common with Rachel than he does with Deckard uh, emotionally, him coming into himself, him finding out, even though he knew like him and Rachel's journey are, are similar, but they're opposite where Rachel finds out that she's a replicant and it, it kind of destroys her initially. And then Kay thinks he's human and he finds out he isn't human or something. I don't know if it's whatever. And that also destroys him. So they're going to they're going through these these very similar journeys, and I, for whatever reason, as emotionless as K as K is, it's powerful. His performance is so powerful in that realization, and also him realizing what is the right thing. What how do I do the right thing? What does that even mean? And um, facing off against adversity, facing off against his his bosses, the the system. And the more I watch 2049, the more I, I travel on that journey, the closer I become to this to him, to him as a character. And that's a very it's been a very strange thing for me. And it's still unfolding to James's point. Um, he said, well, you know, there's five years and there's two movies. How much can you get out of it? We continue to get new things. It's 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 an onion that has endless layers. Every time we talk about these characters and these films, we discover something more. And uh, for me, I've never tired of it. That's my cue. <laughs> well, uh, uh, that's this is this is crazy because usually I'm listening and I get a chance to think about it. And I, I, I'm reacting live now. I'm here. This is <laughs> um, what you said there about Rachel and and Officer K. There again, I'm just like. Um, that's never dawned on me. I'm just like, wow, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know, um, I think because obviously, what what most people, the the, the assumption is, you, you you know, you compare Officer K and Deckard, right? 
Um, and but they're kind of a little bit in reverse because uh, Deckard is someone I relate to. You know, when I watched I watched the film um, the other day, Blade Runner. I was showing it. To, I'm trying to show it to everyone I can, you know. And I was watching it with someone else, and for me, uh, the most recent time I watched it, probably because where I am in life as well, but. It just, it, Blade Runner came across to me, because it can come across in so many different ways, you know, like a, it could be a detective story, a romance, a thriller, sci-fi, whatever you want. This time it felt like a film about depression to me when I watched it, and Deck is just this incredibly depressed guy. And and to be fair, Officer K is as well, but because you're already aware from the start that Officer K is, is a replicant, and he's very, he's very aware of that, there's no delusions there at all, um, I think... And and kind of the environment, as you famously said, James, the uh, dystopian future of dystopian future, right? So the fact you have Deckard there, and he's you know that he seems like you know a really depressed guy that goes through a journey and then realizes kind of the value of life through Roy Batty. That's kind of the interpretation I got it from the last viewing. That will change the next time for sure. With Officer K, yeah, even though he does come across emotionless a lot of the time, he's. Uh, He's forced to be that way, obviously, because of the fact he's a replicant, the fact he has to do these baseline tests all the time, and if he fails one, he's he's going to be retired. He's going to be dead. So he has to have a complete and absolute grip on his emotions at all time, um, which is why he comes across as emotionless all the time during the film, except for those moments when he does have very intense, very strong emotional outbursts and many different varieties of it. You hinted at one there um, where he said, you know, um, when he realizes, well, he, when, when he realizes he's not the, the chosen one, the child, the human, but at the beginning, when he discovers the horse and when he has this realization that like, but even then, he, you know, you, I mean, this is a famous scene. He's like visibly shaking, sweating sort of thing. His reaction is, is incredible. But even then he's got a lock on it. He's not like losing his shit straight away. He's just kind of like, you know, he's reacting to it, but even at that point, even though he's holding physical evidence in his hand of a, of a, a, a memory he has spent his entire life assuming was implanted, he's got physical evidence that it's not. And even then he's like, let me go and speak to the memory maker. Let me go and verify this. I, I can't believe it. I'm going to make sure this is legit. So, and and when he's there, he has probably the most famous emotional reaction where he likes, he screams, he throws the chair, he's like storms out. And then he goes outside and he's and then other parts of the film he, he allows himself to have a little smile at times he allows himself to make a crack a couple of <laughs> a couple of jokes here and there um he's got a very dry sense of humor as well which plays into his character obviously and he goes through these very intense emotional bursts so i think the fact that he he is constantly emotionless when he does have these displays of um emotion it, it's very impactful and powerful and that's something that only the very best actors can portray as well. And I think Ryan Gosling is just a master at that, you know, for sure. Oh, agreed. And I think that's actually a really interesting angle into him that we haven't really explored before, which is Kay's relationship with emotion and emotionality and expression, because that's something that differentiates him a lot from Deckard, as you pointed out wisely, James. But it's also something that I think speaks is part of why he speaks to us differently as time goes on. I think we we talk quite a bit about how COVID has influenced our viewings of this movie and how like our modern age where people are at once more in communication with each other than ever before, but yet more distant from each other than ever before. Uh, how like all of these, these social ripples that we keep wading through as humans are continuing to make this movie speak differently to us. I see a lot of different things in K now than I did when I first saw it. When I first saw it, I was really struck by how one thing, how masterfully Ryan Gosling played the character, but also how the character of Kay and the Nexus Nines that he's a part of spoke to the world that created them. Because, of course, this is after 2036 Nexus Dawn, right? That's short, where we see now that Neander Wallace is going to be allowed to produce replicants again, but these replicants are going to be behaviorally inhibited, and it's going to be basically the domestication of replicants that they have been trying to do for the last, you know, I don't know how many years before that, I guess probably for the last 30 years before that, but have been failing at by and large. Now these replicants are going to be controllable because they would be emotionally inhibited. And what's so striking about Kay is that it's clear that he's not. 
it's clear that he has more moderation control over his emotions than say a human would but he still is very much prone to those outbursts like we still like that's a great point about his humor right that's something we associate with emotion as well he says a lot of funny quips throughout the movie a lot of them are very cute like you know when he says like want to go for a ride like little things like like just little cutesy very human things that you know you wouldn't expect this sort of automaton to do and those are little windows i think into that there is an inner life to k that he is not allowed to really show more than these glimpses and i think of it uh, now like oh yeah go ahead james so i just went to uh, the other jokey the my favorite one is when he goes to the uh to the bald guy he's doing the the fires and he goes oh he's saying oh my mom still cries over the lost baby photos you must have been adorable you, know? you must have been <laughs> adorable <laughs> yeah exactly and he doesn't even he just says it you know like so naturally yeah and and so like they wouldn't make replicants to do that one would assume nexus nights especially a police replicant like that like they, they would be like why program you know humor into them or why allow them to have these sort of you know passably human things if you want something to just be totally subservient to you so you could look at it either as like well they wanted them to be more human, but not human enough. Or you can look at it like there's something special about Kay. The fact that he asks these questions about souls when he's speaking with Joshi, for example, or um, the fact that he finds these little moments of of, of uh, hilarity. But what, what I think of now when I watch it is, so like having lived through COVID as a parent, for example, like I found myself a lot of the time throttling the way that I actually felt for the sake of maintaining normalcy in our household, especially like in, in 2020, when there were, you know, uh, hospital ships floating in the Hudson River, and there were refrigerator trucks full of bodies going down the highway. And, uh, you know, the highways had no cars on them other than the refrigerator trucks, like there were times that were so apocalyptic back then that I was so scared and so sure that like things were completely falling apart. And then the kids weren't allowed to go to school anymore. And I found myself like very consciously throttling like moderating the way that I was coming across, which is not something that I typically do very well. As anybody who listens to this podcast probably knows, I tend to wear my heart on my sleeve, but I wasn't for a long time in 2020. And that has had cascading effects on my mental health ever since because it like threw me out of whack. So now when I watch it and I see Kay doing that to himself, like holding all of that in, um, it hurts a little more now because I realize how painful that might have been for him because he clearly was an emotionally open person or, you know, replicant, but um, one who was passing by passing these baseline tests and acting like he wasn't. And that's something that I think is uh, it's kind of an interesting angle. Jamie, what do you think of that? See, I would disagree. Uh, I would totally push back on that. I think that the LAPD or whoever bought his his model to be in the position that he's in, they need him to do his job, but they also need him to be relatable enough so that he can talk to people. He's gonna because as a police officer, as a as a as a um, Blade Runner, he's got to go and do some investigation. He might need to talk to someone who could be a replicant or who could be a replicant on the run, someone like Sapper. But he's gonna have to have conversation, and they can't just make him robotic in conversation. They're gonna have to imbue him with a little bit of something to be able to relate to people. And I, again, this is just supposition on my part. That's what I feel like we're seeing. I don't think Kay is suppressing his emotion. He is exactly who they bought. So he's got, so he can have a little, he can like make a statement. He can have a little bit of a joke with the clerk from Wallace organization, even his little bit of a dance that he did with um, love um, when they're uh, listening to the conversation between Deckard and Rachel, there's a little bit of a, a, an exchange there. And certainly he has a little bit of a sense of humor. But for me, in my experience or in my impression, all of those are very peripheral. They don't get when we really see Kay in the moment, whether he's walking in the desert in, in Las Vegas or he's deep in investigation back at sappers after sapper is dead he, he's just this stoic being um you can't even read him and what's interesting so interesting about k is i don't know if i've ever experienced a character like him where we he he is only imbued with what what the audience imbues him with like people say oh he loved joy we don't know that all you all we know is what you think he's doing all he is and despite his like little moments of like some conversation, that's really all we know. He's 
He's so shut down, but he's not shut down because I feel like Kay is shut down. That's what he is. He's a replicant that was programmed with certain attributes to do a job and he's on the job. Anything else we extrapolate or we imbue because that's what we see. We see ourselves in him. Again, I don't know if this is, if it's um, fact or whatever, but that's just really my experience of Kay. And like, I've really... As I find myself relating to him more, what I relate to is his loneliness because I can tend to be a lonely person. So I don't know if he's a lonely person. I don't know that at all. All I know is what I'm imbuing in him. She likes him. Who? This Officer Deckard. She's trying to provoke him. It is invigorating being asked personal questions. Makes one feel desire yes yeah, that's, that's an amazing point um i think i know you guys love talking about joy and uh i think oh we fucking uh, hate I mean, joy <laughs> listen no um i wanted to, i mean this isn't a joy episode but uh i i think what you hinted at there is the fact that she that's probably the reason why i mean we don't know for sure if if k went out and bought a joy of his own accord or if he was provided uh, with one by his by the LAPD or whatever so then he has that because that from what we can tell is his only sort of intimate relationship that he has with anyone and that's probably you know playing into your point there where it's like that's his chance to develop his emotions maybe as well I don't know or to practice you know having back because if he didn't have that he would end up like Deckard where he's just just ha hates everyone I don't know <laughs> um but I think the loneliness what you hinted at there uh, for me is what makes him so relatable. I think everyone in all the characters in this film and in later on 2019, and uh, but especially him, have just this overwhelming sense of loneliness about them. I think the most obvious one is actually Dr. Anna Stellin because she's literally like you know sealed in a in a. But anyway, um, with Officer K, yeah, he's. Um, this is definitely what makes him so relatable for me as well. Um, as I mentioned to you guys before, I'm uh, obviously I'm English, but I'm an expat. So I, I live abroad. I've moved to a country where um, at the time of moving here three years ago, I didn't know anyone. I didn't know the language, didn't know anything really. I didn't, you know, I'd, I think what was I thinking sometimes, but I, I just wanted to leave and try something new. Right. And so coming here was very much, I was, I, and you know, when I lived in England, I was going out all the time. I had a great, you know, I had great mates and everything. I was really, I was really uh, extroverted and very outgoing. And I didn't intend to change that. But when I came here, it inevitably happened where I was so isolated. And this is about six months before COVID as well. So what happened there was that, um, you know, I, I managed to get out of that situation. I got a job, I got to meet people, blah, blah, blah. And then um, six months later, roughly, when the uh, lockdown started happening, I was like staring down the barrel of another who, who knew how long extended period of loneliness. Uh, I, you know, I was I've been living alone um, for these last few years. So what I did, my solution to that was getting a dog. Um, so <laughs> I still got here. So and, and actually that that little very it's a very small element in 2049. But the fact that um, Deckard, when we meet him, He's completely isolated, like really, really isolated, really alone. And all he's got for company is a dog. So even on that aspect, I, I relate to that a little bit, like how much comfort that can bring you, even if it's not a person or, or a replicant or, 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 an, or an AI like Joy is, it's still, you know, it's still a being and it's still something that you have a relationship with, takes the edge off for sure. Um, so I thought that was that was worth mentioning. But for, for Officer Kane in particular, that, that's someone I... I I don't know if you're aware of the 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 phenomenon, the trend that's happening with with literally me characters, you know, from like American Psycho, Patrick Bateman, uh, Fight Club, um, you know, uh, Taxi Driver, Travis Bickle. So you've got and and Officer K is always in that in that um, among those names as well, and he's someone. And there's a reason for that. It's he's he's a, a young man in this film who's alone. Who, well, who who's who's very lonely he does a job which he resents which I, I relate to somewhat um and and he's just you know and he's got he just he looks all the time he's got the world on his shoulders but he's got no one to really turn to and kind of 
open up to and be emotional with. He just has to kind of just just keep what you know, wake, eat, sleep, work, repeat that sort of thing. And he's very, he's just really, you can tell he's just beaten down. And the stuff he faces on a daily basis, he, um, you, you know, you've had a lot of guests that I've heard that have experienced different forms of discrimination. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't, to be fair, very often, but uh, I still, I'm biracial, right? So I, um, at least I have this, uh, as you know, my mum my and my dad are from different countries and I'm living in a country now where my mum is from and I never really feel completely accepted 100% as a native of this country. I'm always seen as the English guy. And now when I'm in England, I get the reverse. I'm like, oh, it's the guy that lives there, da, da, da. Like, so it's always that that lack of belonging kind of, that 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 plays into it a lot. That's just kind of a, an example. But I think just generally speaking, on, on, as, as you have social interactions, the loneliness is, and, and the inability for sure is, and he always feels like, uh, he's the third wheel in someone else's story in this film as well, where he's just, you know, he's there to let, to make Deckard meet his daughter, for example, or, you know, um, and he just goes through batterings everywhere he goes. When you see him at work at the beginning of the film, he goes, he's in his place of work and he's been, you know, fuck off skin job. You know, the guy's all but spitting on him. Um, he's, he's been, he's got on, on his door, fuck off skin. I was watching it yesterday, last night. Um, in anticipation for this episode of course and uh, i was you know i was just those are some of the things that really jumped out to me up, upon this viewing just uh, the 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 discrimination goes through when he has that conversation which you uh, mentioned there earlier patrick with uh, yoshi joshi sorry she he goes you know uh, he has that kind of conundrum about he's been told to kill someone that was born and you know to be born is to have a soul that's his conclusion that he arrives at maybe he's been thinking about that a lot maybe he thinks about it on the spot and then as he's walking out, he's he's walking out. They've said their bit, they're, they're walking away. And then she calls him back just to say, don't worry, you've been getting on fine with that one. And he goes, what's that, man? A soul. And his reaction to her saying that, she doesn't even look at him when she says that. She just, just says it like this throwaway comment. But you see his reaction and it, it holds on him. That's one of my favorite moments from the whole film. His reaction to that is just like he's it just kills him it just kills him like any and it just keeps him on that baseline level it just keeps him on that emotional thing it's just this this kick in the gut just to remind you you're 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 nothing you're a replicant you're a robot you you're, you don't you don't have a soul you're soulless you know saying that to someone in just such a blase manner as well it's just whatever you know like dismissive and he's there and he just his his face is just like and there's what can he say what can he do nothing he just stands there and and just continues on his way and there's nothing he can do about it and uh i think that's just such a powerful moment of um just a powerful moment k i think also functions really well and i, I like that you're bringing this up james as a vector to look at loneliness through in 2049 because that's something that We've talked about it in some ways, but like I don't think we've ever really gotten into it in depth about why that feels like such a lonely film. But almost all of these interactions that we're talking about take place in sealed sarcophaguses, right? Like even the Wallace headquarters is basically just this like empty box with nobody in it other than glass encased alpha models and one or two employees, right? Uh, when you go to the LAPD headquarters, you know, you, you're out of a busy hallway. The conversations are happening in Joshi's office, which is again, a sealed off little container. When Kay gets off the street and goes through all of the hubbub and all of the racism and all the shit on his door and he finally closes it, he's again in just this little box. When we see, like you pointed out beautifully, James, Staline is inside a literal bubble, right? All of the, and, and of course, the most notable of all in this is Deckard, who not only is in isolation on his own, but he's the only person in an entire quarantine zone. Like there's like nothing there with him. So it's a series of these tableaus of people who are alone in the world. And I think watching Kay navigate that is uh, is really interesting because like it, his journey is fascinating because in a way we kind of want as an audience to imprint a lot of things upon him. And I think all three of us are doing that as we're talking today. We're kind of looking at him through the lens that we want to see him through and drawing conclusions about it that may or may not be real. Uh, but I think part, part of the great thing with poetry is it kind of doesn't matter. It's kind of whatever you take from it. But the, I think like a typical audience member, and I would count myself among them, 
has this moment halfway through the film when they're watching it for the first time where they're like, oh shit, like I called it. Do you remember? I remember that very distinctly, that feeling of like, I knew Kay was the kid in the dream. Like I knew, I, I, I feel it like that's what this is going to be about. And then being like, well, it's okay if I figured it out. You know, it's just a twist. Like there's more to the movie than just the twist. And then the twist isn't real. And we have this wonderful moment as an audience where we're like, stop getting in the way of the narrative. Like you are not, like you're stop trying to predict what's going to happen with this movie and just kind of allow it to unfold. And once it does, we, as well as Kay become liberated from the expectations that I think we bring to this film. So Kay goes on to have this very different journey, which is much more human in a much more kind of simple and nuanced way than the journey towards humanity is in 2019, right? Because Kay finds his quote unquote humanity through, I would argue, first off his, his relationship with Joy, which then, of course, changes drastically. But then with the way that he helps Decker to recover and to rediscover his daughter and to kind of allow that story to continue once he's gone from it. Whereas Deckard's story, of course, in 2019 is very different in that it's basically beaten into him. Um, and then he discovers his humanity as a result of that, which is powerful, but very different. This one, it's almost like this very feminine language of, you know, forming connections and getting out of the way so that stories can continue without you being the one at the center of them, which I think is very refreshing about Kay. And I think helps position this movie well into the future because it, it's less sort of about the setup and the suspense and the combat and the twist and all these, these very kind of, you know, prototypical sci-fi action tropes and more about what it means to have a story in the first place and who gets to tell it. Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you long for having your heart interlinked? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you dream about being interlinked? Interlinked. What's it like to hold your child in your arms? Uh, to your point about loneliness, what I think is interesting about 2049 is we might be highlighting Kay, but almost everyone in this film, in that film, is, is experiencing loneliness or it's, they seem they're like they're on an island. Even love, like love is works for Wallace, but she is clearly on her own. You can see in her psyche, at least that's what I imbue on her. I mean, this is a a a, a character that is alone, that is that is dispatched to, to do the will of her overlord, her creator, and that's her role. And she does it, but there's also a lot going on in her, and you can see it in her eyes, because Sylvia Hooks created a wonderful performance for that character. So it's, it's happening all over. And conversely, in the original, there's less loneliness. I think Deckard is an island for sure, but Deckard's also, also lost in himself. In, in in a way where it's almost like he's a navel gazer in some ways. But you see, even when we first meet Roy, he's with Leon, and then he's with Pris. I don't get the sense of loneliness. If anything, the city feels isolating when you're in LA and Pris is walking down the street. And there are moments where you kind of feel that sense of kind of being lost in the city, but I don't get the sense of loneliness from the original. But with 2049, what... I think is so fascinating is you have this again they're back in LA and it's this huge city and everyone is lonely even I don't know so the people who live in Kay's building I don't know why they're all crowded in if they're living in there like in the stairwell if that's kind of what the living conditions are but everyone feels like even when they're in the food court at the, when they're near BB's bar the sex bar or whatever and then you see people on the other tables they seem lonely too. No one feel it doesn't feel like this is a community of people. This seems like a series of interconnected island of people or islands of people who are just trying to eke out their own existence the best way that they know how. And that theme to me is so powerful. As Patrick pointed out, we're living in, in a current world where we're all connected, but we're all the most disconnected we've ever been. It was a new life for me, and they picked me, made my cage, filled it with everything they could to keep me happy, except company, of course. And I was used to crowds. What can I help you with? Thought you might be able to help me with the case. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I think 
the yeah like i said yeah you're right with with 2049 it is a film a lot about loneliness um and like i said every character is just uh i think joshi as well someone that seems very lonely i mean you you don't see so much of her obviously she only interacts really with Kay in the whole film and with love at, um, at the end but uh other than that she's quite lonely as well um the thing about uh 2019 where you say yeah i mean Deckard is definitely kind of the embodiment of loneliness. He's an island. He's, but he's. You feel like he's lonely because he's kind of chosen to withdraw from society a bit because of it. What I, you know, what I interpret is his depression there. Um, but I think as well in uh, in um, in twenty nineteen, one character who really symbolizes loneliness for me is uh, J F Sebastian. He is so lonely. He has to make his own toys to kind of keep him, keep some kind of, you know, social something happening around him. You know, um, he has he makes his own friends like literally by making toys that he can interact with. Fortunately, that goes hand in hand with him being a he designs. I'm going to do this wrong. Genetic designer, I think he is right. Genetic engineer. Which, funnily enough, I know you guys like. Or you know, it's it's the temptation to point out um, parallels between the two films. I find JF has a slight parallel with Dr. Anstelene, where they're both very involved in um, the replicant process and in, in their engineers, basically, um, and Anstelene for memories and, and JF for, um, for genetics. But anyway, either way, they're both very... It's funny how that, that role that they have, which is so important to replicants in their manufacturing process, they're like some of the most isolated, lonely people we meet in both films. But yeah, for Deckard, I, th I think for sure he he's lonely. And and you know the f the thing about loneliness, the way it's defined, and my my earliest um, kind of memory in terms of being able to define what loneliness was, I saw some kind of post or some uh, quote which was like, "Loneliness is there's a difference between being alone and being lonely." It was making that difference, and, and the fact that you can be uh, you could be alone in, in, in your house, whatever, but you, you feel you're not lonely, right? Um, whereas you can be a, you can be lonely in a group in a in a group of people in in a crowd. I think that was the quote. It's like you can be experience loneliness in a crowd. That's something I didn't understand at the time, but now I certainly do. Um, oh, and obviously in twenty in twenty nineteen and twenty forty nine more so. It's they they're happening in LA, which is you know mega metropolis, which is like you know millions upon millions of people we don't even know how much but you know it's, it's it's that speculation but the fact how lonely all of these people can be when they're stacked on top of each other in these buildings and everything and that is something you know very relevant today you know how how things are you know everyone's a lot of people for me for example you know you have your neighbors and stuff well, i live in in, in, in flats and you know you go through life and it, back in the day i think you know a de uh, you know, a uh, hundred years ago, or whatever, everyone knew their neighbors' names and stuff. Now, I don't know a lot of my own neighbors' names, and that's not because I haven't wanted to, or or because you know they're they're bad people, or whatever. I just don't, I just don't. For some reason, the way things are with society, you just um, it's just that loneliness where you just you even your own neighbors, you don't know the name. That would would have been such a normal thing back in the day. I think you know everyone's got keys to each other's doors. I don't know, but um, that's that's what you reminded me of when you mentioned Kay's actual apartment complex as well. They know of him, but they're just hurling abuse and, and slurs at him rather than, you know, they just don't even want to know him, let alone have the opportunity to, I suppose. Yeah, and this is something that I think you being somewhat younger than us, especially Jamie, will know well is that, you know, I think that in the last, if I look 20 years ago, right? Like, I mean, when I was a kid playing in the neighborhood, like everybody knew Everybody, like I, I would just walk outside and people would, kids would just come out of their houses and like everybody's parents would watch everybody else's kids. It was very communal, uh, not not as communal as Jamie's upbringing, but in, in, a, in a less literal way, it was very communal. Like the whole neighborhood knew each other and we all relied on each other for things. And now, now that I like have a house and have little kids of my own in a neighborhood, I mean, we only know our immediate next door neighbors. I don't even know the names of most of the people on the street. And I'm like the most gregarious person I've ever met. Like I, if you put me in a crowd of people, I will walk away knowing all of them by the end of the night. I don't know anybody. And that's, I think, part of why this is so haunting as a parable for us is because we see the the four, the after the, the before shocks of this happening already. Like we see all of the things in place because it's easy to look at 2049 as a parable about environmentalism. 
because it is. That's that's a very visible, large thing that is going on in 2049, that the world is collapsing under the weight of the things that we're doing to it, right? That there are waste zones and trash mesas and quarantine zones and irradiated or like like so that that's a very obvious and very important part of it. But I think the 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 thematic thing that continues to speak to us all is this idea of loneliness and about how to find human connection in a connectionless environment like that. So I think, yeah, kind of as we as we come to a close here, K for me um has become a really great gateway into how I can look for ways to reconnect myself and to not just be connected within my immediate family and immediate circle of friends, but to connect with other people as well, because his ultimate heroic journey, and he does have a genuinely heroic journey, not like, I mean, Deckard does not have a heroic journey in, in 2019 by any means, although he's the quote unquote hero. He's the protagonist of the movie. Kay really has a fucking heroic arc to him, right? He comes full circle and he goes through struggles and he has loss and he has a denouement. And then he ends the movie with a final act of sacrifice and he lets go and he gets buried in the snow as the main theme song of the franchise plays in the background and everybody cries and watches him breathe his last breath on the steps. And we all feel for him. And that's a heroic journey. So Kay gives us that. And I, and I really, really love it. And in doing so gives us a model for how to be heroes in this new world we find ourselves in. And I think if, if there's anything that I've learned from Kay, it's something that we've talked about before, but it's that who you're born as is not who you need to live your life as that you can find something greater than yourself to be a part of and that you can work to connect people again and you can work to to help foster more love in a world where love is really a commodity that's harder to come by. So yeah, that's kind of my, my closing thoughts on him. My closing thoughts would be that the more I discover about Kay is really the more I discover about myself because he's, he, he, he is in many ways a blank canvas. Uh, I, I, I don't know any other movie that touches me, similar to your point you made earlier, Patrick, the way Blade Runner 2049 touches me. I, I mean, I've repeated this statement over and over on the show, but when the first screening I went to, when the credits rolled, I was just in awe. I, I couldn't, I didn't want to leave the world. It was, there was just something so powerful, more powerful than the original, and, but in a completely separate way. Um, so Kay is someone, yeah, I, his story is so important because him being the hero of the story was him being the hero for himself. It wasn't almost, yes, he saved Deckard at the end and that was a heroic thing. But for me, the most heroic thing Kay did is to realize you are special because of who you are, not because of what you are. Um, and that is just so important. Like Kay found, he found purpose and in uh, that purpose, it was doing the right thing. And I, I've always, oftentimes, people use the word hero or superhero, and it's doing this or it's saving this person or it's doing this great, amazing thing. When I really feel like those real, those acts, those heroic acts, are acts we do to care for ourselves, and that's what Kay did. And uh, so, again, as I continue to explore him as a character, uh, he continues to resonate with me. Yeah, um, as I said, for me, I think he's just a very relatable character. He's one of those, like I say, a literally me character. Um, like I said, Patrick, you know, um, I'm 23. I didn't grow up in the 80s or the 90s. I didn't really, I didn't expect, this is the world, the only world I know, this world of where there's so much, um, so much loneliness happening. And so, you know, people are so isolated from each other. And yeah, like you say, we're, we're, everything is online. We, I, I can have a, a call with you guys halfway across the world. But, you know, I don't know my neighbor's name, for example, you know, it's, that's that's pretty mind blowing. And, and it's the reality that I'm that I'm in that I've been born into effectively, you know, just like these characters. Um, I think as well, you know, with with um, with the emotional journey that uh, Kay goes on kind of reminds me the, the the ending of the film for me is of course like the the ultimate for me it's one of the best endings to any film i've ever seen and 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 it's actually a beautiful way to end both films as well it ends 2019 in a way as well as ending 2049 but still leaving it open to a third one hopefully but uh, anyway um the fact that first of all yeah like you said uh james he's bailed out but he uh deckard in both films is bailed out by a replicant he, he needs a replicant to save him at both times. And this is where 
Kay has a similar journey in a way to uh, to Roy Batty as well, in that you know he he ends up making a decision a decision when his his everything everything you expect from him would be well certainly Roy Batty would be to kill Deckard or to let him die, um, but then he makes he does a one eighty and saves him, and then dies himself. Um, in his last moments, that's what he chooses to do. Officer K, same thing. He's not on as much on the brink of death as Roy Batty is, but he's he's there. He's wounded. He's lost his his he's lost joy. He's lost his job as well. He's got nothing. He's ruined, you know. Um, and he and and he makes a and he's actually the rebel leader tells him the replicant rebel leader tells him to go and kill Deckard. And he has a choice as well, and he's got nothing to live for. I think at the point when he's on the bridge, he sees the the uh, the joy there, and he he has this moment again. It hammers into him how, you know, how des how how he has nothing. So then he goes and says, "Okay, I've got X amount of time to live. I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to do something to change someone's life." And he does that by reuniting Deckard with his daughter, and and dying in the process. So like, he basically, well, he does. He sacrifices himself, and. The, the ending, the, the music, the tears and rain, that for me is just the most uh, poetic, emotional, not just tribute to the first film and what happens there and, and everything, but just, yeah, um, Kay taking his last breath on those steps. Um, it's, it's, it's devastating, but then there is this poetic sense of he's, he's satisfied, he's at peace because he's accomplished something. He's gone beyond his programming, whatever, what he was designed to do. And uh, in one episode I, I listened to of your, your guys recently and where you speculated about what he might have been thinking in those, those, in those last moments. And there's a chance that he was thinking about joy in that moment. Because he's, he's when the first time he's, he's, you know, with the snow there, maybe he was thinking about the rooftop with her. And, um, and yeah, and, and it's just, it's a really beautiful moment. So as, as my closing thought anyway, um, really is the fact that um again i've got to thank you guys for having me on here and uh, i'm glad that i was able to bring officer k back to the table a little bit because like you mentioned before at the very beginning patrick how you, you took a while getting to him to actually having an episode dedicated to his catch and i was getting frustrated because every time i watch 2049 i really experienced it through officer k i, I relate to him so much it's hard for me to focus on other characters because i'm really in his shoes a lot of the time and then so I was like, when are you guys going to talk about him? And then, and now I've, I've had a chance to, thankfully, to actually speak about him myself and obviously encourage you guys to revisit him as well. So it's been a real, uh, real pleasure, real honor to, uh, to, be, to been able to done this with you guys. That's been great having you on, James. You did, you did fantastic. And I hope we get yeah. to talk to you again. Yeah. Um, Thank you. I, and just yeah, as we, as we close out here, uh, a special shout out to Stefan Barton, who just joined our Patreon yesterday. Stefan, thank you. Welcome aboard. There's a lot of new stuff there, including our first ever episode of Jamie. Yo, we fucking hate it. Yo, we fucking hate it. A brand <laughs> new Patreon series that James is also just finding out about on this call right now. So if you're interested in signing up for that, go to bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support. You can join uh, Stefan and others there. And uh, in addition to that, I want to do a quick reminder for people that we commissioned Jason Judah, who was actually another patron, uh, as in addition to being an incredible professional artist, to do an original 40th anniversary Blade Runner shirt for Shoulder of Orion for this year. It went on sale back around the time that was the official 40th anniversary mark a few months ago. And uh, and we sold some, and then it kind of stopped. And, and so I want to... Uh, once again, encourage people to pick it up because it's freaking dope. And I wear mine all the time and I might buy another version of it before the end of the year. Cause it's just a great shirt and it's a beautiful design. It's Rachel. It's got, you know, the VK machine. Uh, it's stunning artwork and it comes in multiple different styles. So you can get whatever you want. Or you and, can buy um, it as a poster or a mug. Buy it as or, a poster. Yep. Yeah. You can buy whatever you want. Uh, and you should, cause it's a beautiful piece of artwork and I'm bringing it up also because the money that we make on that goes directly to support the show and to commission artists like Jason to do this because we do actually pay professional commission prices when we ask artists to contribute because we should. So anytime we, you know, make a short film or an audio drama, we do the same thing. We, we provide people with money that, you know, is worth their time and we can only do that because of the patrons who support this show. So that, that is what you have bankrolled. And that is the art that you have helped bring into the world. And we are so grateful that you've done that. And we really 
honestly exhort anybody else listening to this who has ever enjoyed this show to just spend the amount you spend maybe on a small cup of coffee every month and just come and join Patreon. And we would love to have you there. Uh, lastly, to James's point about us covering K, we have a whole episode dedicated to K. Um, I can't remember what episode number it was. It's happened within the last year and a half because we went so much, so long without having a discussion about him. We realized it's time. We need to actually talk about him. And it was a really lively and in-depth episode, uh, kind of what we do on here on Shoulder of Orion. So definitely check that out um, just to kind of see where we were about a year and a half ago or maybe two years ago and as opposed to where we are now. So. Thank you for listening, everyone. And thank yeah, you, thanks, James, everybody. for coming on the show. Thanks, James. And thank you for reaching out to us. Thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks, Evan. Talk soon. All right. See you later. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.